This is the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Greetings, friends, and welcome again to the Biblical Unitarian Podcast, the podcast that aims to start conversations about the oneness and unity of God and about the humanity of Jesus. My name is Dustin Smith, and as always, I will be your host. Thank you so much for taking your time to tune in to this week's episode. This week, we have episode 218 entitled, The Misunderstood Son of Man in John chapter 12. Last week, we looked at John chapter 11, and this week we will be looking into chapter 12 to look at the theme of misunderstanding within the fourth gospel. And after we look at chapter 12, we have about four more sessions in order to round off our all-encompassing study of a theme of misunderstanding within the Gospel of John. Now, if you need a reminder as to the components of the theme of misunderstanding, or if this is your first episode in which you will be hearing about this theme, it's very important that we have this straight in our mind, very clear, so that we can make sense of what the narrator is trying to convey. So the theme of misunderstanding in the Gospel of John has these three basic components. Number one, Jesus makes an ambiguous statement. Number two, the conversation partner misunderstands what Jesus said, either by interpreting it literally or by asking an inappropriate question. And number three, Either Jesus or the narrator explain what Jesus meant. Although sometimes the explanation is missing, but clearly implied. So as I mentioned, this week we will be looking into John chapter 12 to explore the instance of the theme of misunderstanding within this particular chapter. And in this chapter, Jesus is going to self-identify as the Son of Man. Specifically, Jesus is going to say that he is the Son of Man who is going to die, and he's going to be lifted up in glorification. Why does Jesus describe himself as this empowered human figure? What is the significance of the death of Jesus and this phrase, be lifted up? And how does the narrative of the Gospel of John clarify the manner in which Jesus is lifted up when the crowds misunderstand what Jesus is trying to say? Let's find out on this week's episode of the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Our first point today is Jesus declaring himself to be the Son of Man. We are in John chapter 12, and I'm going to start in verse 23. And Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He who loves his life loses it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it to eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. 
Now my soul has become troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose, I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came out of heaven. I have glorified it and will glorify it again. So the crowd of people who stood by and heard it were saying that it had thundered. Others were saying an angel had spoken to him. Jesus answered and said, This voice has not come for my sake, but for your sakes. Now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out, and I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. But he was saying this to indicate the kind of death by which he was to die. The crowds then answered him, We have heard out of the law that the Christ is to remain forever. And how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? That's John chapter 12, verses 23 through 34. Before we go digging into the particular instance of the theme of misunderstanding, I want to highlight a few key points in this passage. So our passage begins with Jesus speaking about the glorification of the Son of Man. And glorification within the Gospel of John doesn't simply refer to the resurrection and exaltation to God's right hand, like you might think and come to expect, but within the Gospel of John, the glorification of Jesus also deals with the death of Jesus, the death that ultimately leads to resurrection. And Jesus makes the point of death in regard to glorification very clear by speaking a short parable about a grain of wheat that falls to the earth to die. In the context of speaking about his glorification, he speaks about death. Now, the hour of Jesus' glorification specifically refers to the climactic moment of his death. And the hour, of course, is that time, that climactic moment within the narrative of the fourth gospel, which is now, or at least very soon, within the next couple of chapters. Now, the death of the Son of Man is closely tied to eternal life, specifically eternal life that is given to the followers of Jesus, the servants of Jesus, those who lose their life for the sake of being disciples of Jesus. That eternal life, of course, is the life of the age to come. Now, Jesus talks about drawing all people to himself. If he is lifted up, he will draw all men to himself. And this phrase, all men, which is really a reference to all people, does not refer to each and every single human being, resulting in a form of universalism. Now, I don't think that Jesus is saying that he's going to draw every single human being, each and every one, unto him. But rather, this phrase, call all men, 
refers to the work of the Son of Man that encompasses all of the world's people. It is the scope of the Son of Man's redemption. And all of the world's people does not specifically refer to Jews alone, but to Jews and Gentiles, to all races, to all nationalities, to all ethnic persons. And I think this reference to all referring to Jews and Gentiles can be clarified when we look a little bit further into the context. A few verses before the beginning of our passage that I read, we have a reference to Greek persons that want to come to Jesus, that want to come and listen to Jesus and become his disciples. So in chapter 12, verse 20, it says, Now there were some Greeks among those who were going up to worship at the feast. These then came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and began to ask him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip came and told Jesus. Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. That's John 12, verses 20 through 23. And as you can see in verse 23, that is actually the beginning verse of the passage with which we started our program. So the Greeks want to come to Jesus. They now become a part of the crowds. And so Jesus is talking about drawing all men unto himself, all persons, not just Jews, but Jews and Greeks meaning Jews and non-Jews, which would ultimately refer to all Gentiles. The scope of the redemption of the Son of Man is for all persons, not just for the Jewish people. So enough about the finer points. Let's look at the theme of misunderstanding involving the Son of Man's death. That's our second point for today. Point number two, looking at the theme of misunderstanding involving the death of the Son of Man. So you remember, theme misunderstanding involves three points. The first point is that Jesus makes an ambiguous statement. This is pretty clearly seen in chapter 12, verse 32, where Jesus says, And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And this phrase, lifted up, is the key phrase that we need to try to comprehend and understand. It comes from the Greek verb ipso-o, and ipso-o has two very important meanings. It's important to grasp both of these meanings in order to make sense of the misunderstanding within this particular passage. So ipso-o in Greek, which is translated here, lifted up, could mean, definition one, to be lifted up spatially, meaning to be picked up off of the ground. It could also mean, definition number two, to be exalted, to be glorified, and to be honored. So to be lifted up could mean to lift up like you're lifting up a pencil off of your desk. Or it could mean to be lifted up in the sense of exalting, glorifying, and honoring. It has both of those meanings within the particular verb, 
And you shouldn't look at this as an either or, as in it could either mean to be spatially lifted up, or it could mean exalted, glorified, or honored, and that you need to pick one of these two. No, oftentimes these verbs carry both meanings, and they overlap in very important ways. Now, this verb is relatively rare within the fourth gospel, within the Gospel of John. It only appears four times, but in those four occurrences, its use is very significant, and it sheds light on the occurrences that we see in our present passage. So, our present passage has two of the four occurrences here in chapter 12, verse 32, which is where Jesus makes the ambiguous statement. It'll also show up in chapter 12, verse 34, a few verses later, where the crowds question and they declare their misunderstanding over the phrase. And the other two occurrences are earlier in the Gospel of John. The first one is in chapter 3, verse 14, where Jesus says, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. That's John 3.14, to where Jesus describes himself as the Son of Man, as the authorized human being. And there, notice that the Son of Man must be lifted up. This human being must be lifted up. And chapter 3, verse 14 continues to go on about the death of this Son of Man, the unique Son, as we know a few verses later in chapter 3, verse 16. And the last occurrence of the phrase lifted up from the Greek verb ipso-o is in John 8, verse 28, where Jesus says, When you lift up the Son of Man, you will know that I am He. I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak the things as the Father taught me. So again, we have the lifting up of the Son of Man, that is, lifting up the Son of Man on the cross, but of course, it's Jesus defining himself as the Son of Man. So we're noting this very interesting theme that the one who is to be lifted up, and I think what Jesus means here is that he is going to be lifted up on the cross. Jesus defines the one who is going to be lifted up on the cross as a genuine human being, as the Son of Man. And not just any Son of Man, not just any mortal human figure. The Son of Man is the authorized human being from Daniel chapter 7. In Daniel chapter 7, we have this human figure who is distinct from the Ancient of Days. The human figure, the Son of Man, is not to be identified as the Ancient of Days, but the Ancient of Days gives to the Son of Man God's dominion, God's glory, and God's kingship, so that all the people's will come to worship this Son of Man. So Son of Man is a genuine human figure, but he is highly authorized. He is highly empowered. The true God, the Ancient of Days, has shared God's own dominion, God's own glory, and God's own kingship with this human being. But Jesus sees himself as this man. He's a member of the human race, who is going to be lifted up, and he's going to die. We'll have a little bit more to say about this later in the episode. 
So that's the first part of the theme of misunderstanding, is that Jesus makes the ambiguous statement, and the ambiguity comes with the phrase lifted up, which could mean to be lifted up spatially, off the ground, like Jesus is going to be lifted up away from the earth, or to refer to the lifting up of exaltation, glorification, and being honored. So we can now move to the next part of the theme of misunderstanding, where the conversation partner misunderstands what Jesus said. We can see this pretty clearly in chapter 12, verse 34, where it says that the crowds then answered Jesus, We have heard out of the law that the Christ is to remain forever. And how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So what we note in this passage are a couple of very interesting things. We can see that the crowds are going to correctly, in my opinion, equate the Christ and the Son of Man, as if the Son of Man was understood by the crowds as a messianic figure. I'm not sure if you noticed that in the passage in 12 verse 32. They say, we have heard that the Christ is going to remain forever. How can you say the Son of Man is going to be lifted up? The understanding there is that Christ is a messianic title that is synonymous with the Son of Man. Son of Man is understood to be a messianic title for the Christ. So they're basically saying, we have heard that the Messiah is going to remain forever. How can you say that the Messiah is going to be lifted up and not remain forever? Who is this messianic person? Of course, they don't see quite yet that Jesus is this Son of Man. So, they correctly identify Christ and Son of Man as one and the same messianic figure. But of course, their misunderstanding deals with the phrase lifted up. They assume that when Jesus says that the Son of Man is going to be lifted up, or that I will be lifted up, they think that it means that he's going to be lifted up and elevated off of the earth. Presumably, he's going to be exalted to heaven. He's going to be glorified. He's going to be honored by being exalted to heaven. He's going to no longer remain forever. He's going to go away. Now, why is it that they have this expectation that the Messiah is going to remain forever? They specifically say that the Christ is going to remain forever, and they draw this out of the law. They draw this out of the Hebrew Scriptures. Now, the primary place where the Messiah, the anointed king, the son of God, is said that he is going to remain forever comes out of 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 through 16. It's a very important passage, arguably one of the most important passages in all of the Hebrew Bible. So here we have Nathan the prophet speaking to David about David's messianic descendant. And it says in 2 Samuel 7, verse 12, When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you, who will come forth from you. I will establish his kingdom. He will build a house for my name. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him. He will be a son to me. The passage goes on in verse 16. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. 
your throne shall be established forever. That's 2 Samuel 7, verses 12 through 16. So we have a descendant of David who comes forth from David, meaning he is a human being just like David is. And this human is going to have a house that is a dynasty. He's going to have his own throne, the throne of the Messiah. And he's going to have a kingdom forever. And the passage reiterates the fact that this house, throne, and kingdom are going to last forever. And of course, this particular figure is described as the Son of God. In verse 14, I will be a father to him, he will be a son to me. So the son of David, a human being, a descendant like David, is going to be the son of God. God there, that single person, that I, is described as the father. But he's going to remain forever. Another passage in the Hebrew Bible that describes the fact that the Messiah was expected to remain forever is in Psalm 89, verses 3 through 4. Where the psalmist says, speaking on behalf of God, that I have made a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn to David, my servant, I will establish your seed forever and build up your throne to all generations. That's Psalm 89, verses 3 through 4. So God reminding the readers of the Davidic covenant that the seed of David, the dynasty of David, specifically the descendants of David, and David's line of kings, of rulers, that's going to remain forever, for all generations. And Ezekiel 37 verse 25 has the prophecy about the son of David, the messianic figure, who is going to be a ruler forever. It says that they will live on the land that I gave to Jacob, my servant, in which your fathers live. They will live in it, they and their sons and their sons' sons forever. And David, my servant, will be their prince forever. That's Ezekiel 37, verse 25, to where it is the climactic David. It is the second David, the son of David, who is the servant of Yahweh. He is going to be the prince, the ruler of Jacob, of Israel, and he's going to be there forever. We have this phrase forever appearing in all of these passages. So the crowds are correct that the Messiah is supposed to remain forever. That is their understanding. But of course, Jesus understands that the forever begins at a certain point. It begins at the resurrection to where he is to live forever, at his exaltation where he is going to be installed at God's right hand. And of course, the Messiah is supposed to return and consummate the kingdom of God upon the earth. So their misunderstanding, the misunderstanding of the crowds, takes the verb lifted up, ipso-o, and they think that it means the spatial sense of being lifted up. He's going to be lifted up and taken away. He's going to go away. So he's not going to remain forever. How is this possible? There seems to be a contradiction. But we get the explanation 
of the misunderstanding, which is the third part of the theme of misunderstanding, to where either Jesus or the narrator explains what Jesus meant. We can see this in chapter 12, verse 33, where the narrator helpfully tells us that he, Jesus, was saying this to indicate the kind of death by which he was to die. So to be lifted up does not simply mean to be exalted, glorified, and honored. It also means to be lifted up on the cross. Being lifted up on the cross indicates that Jesus is going to the cross to die. It is Jesus' death where the glorification takes place, or at least begins its climactic effects. So as you can see, the theme of misunderstanding revolves around this verb to be lifted up and the fact that it has two meanings and the crowds only understand one meaning where Jesus means both of these meanings. Jesus is going to be lifted up on the cross to die and it is through the death of Jesus where he will be exalted, glorified, and honored by the Father. So let's move us to our third and final point which is the Christological implications to Jesus' self-declaration to be the Son of Man. There are a lot of Christological implications in our present passage. I probably could spend another hour talking about all of them, but I wanted to highlight what I thought were the key points that are worthy for our consideration, our theology, and our own Christology. So let's talk about the Son of Man being lifted up. We've already spoken extensively about the phrase to be lifted up, but it is specifically the Son of Man who is going to be lifted up. The Son of Man, of course, is a human being, a genuine member of the human race. It is the Son of Man who is going to be lifted up and die on the cross, meaning it is the Son of Man that is a human being who is going to atone for sins. And, of course, the Son of Man, a human being, is going to be exalted by the Father. So the Gospel of John is very comfortable saying that a human being, a member of the human race, is going to die for the sins of the people. It doesn't try to depict Jesus as God becoming a man, dying on the cross, nor does it depict Son of Man as a heavenly angel dying on the cross. No, it is very specific. It is defined in multiple places. In fact, every single time that the phrase to be lifted up appears, it is the Son of Man who is to be lifted up. It's quite clear to identify the theory of atonement in that a human being, a genuine member of the human race, is going to be the one who dies on the cross. Now, of course, the crowds identify the Son of Man as the Christ. Now, how is it that they came to this conclusion? I think one of the important things is understanding that both of these messianic titles, Son of Man and Christ, refer to persons who represent their people. They are representative figures. I'll establish this pretty clearly. Let's begin with the Son of Man. The Son of Man 
is a human being who represents other human beings. We can see this in Daniel chapter 7. So briefly, in Daniel 7 verse 13, we have the Son of Man who approaches the Ancient of Days, thereby distinguishing the Son of Man from the true God. In verse 14 of Daniel 7, that is where the Ancient of Days gives to this human being dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples and nations should serve him. Now, as the prophecy in Daniel chapter 7 gets clarified and gets unpacked by this angelic visitor that is speaking to Daniel the prophet, the Son of Man turns out to be defined as a different set of persons. We could see in verse 18 of Daniel chapter 7, actually it's in verse 18, in verse 22, and in verse 27, that it is no longer the Son of Man, it is the Holy Ones of the Most High, the saints of the Most High. It is the people, and as you read through the rest of Daniel chapter 7, it is the people who are being harassed, those who are being persecuted, and those who are being afflicted by the malevolent forces of this little horn figure. So the Son of Man is a human figure that represents other human beings, specifically those who are linked to God, they're associated with God, they are God's people, and yet the Son of Man is the one that is vindicated, he is glorified, he receives kingship, and instead of being afflicted by these nations, these terrible beasts, all the nations turn to give worship and honor to this Son of Man. So Daniel chapter 7 defines the Son of Man as a representative figure for other human beings, godly human beings, the saints of the Most High. And that's clear to indicate that the Son of Man is a representative figure for humanity. Now Christ, which is a reference to the anointed king, the anointed king is also a representative of humanity. So in Psalm 2, we can see Yahweh and his Christ in Psalm 2, verse 2. Thereby we have a distinction between Yahweh and Christ. But Christ is defined in Psalm 2, specifically in verse 6, as the king. And in Psalm 2, 7, it is Yahweh's son, the son of God. And so we have all of these different terms to describe the Christ. Christ is a king. Christ is the son of God. Christ is the son of Yahweh, which makes Yahweh the father. And we do know that the king within Israelite theology of kingship is a figure who represents his people. The king represents his people. The king makes decisions for the people. When the king does good, all the people are rewarded. When the king does poorly, the people get punished. David, functioning as a representative of the people, goes out as a single individual and fights Goliath, and that one person's victory ensues victory for all the people. And yet, when David sins by taking the census, all the people 
get punished because the king represents his people. That's a pretty easy point to demonstrate. So the Son of Man is a representative figure for humanity. Christ is also a figure who represents his people. So I think it is that sort of theology that connects Son of Man and Christ. There are other things as well. The fact that they are given kingship by God, they are given authority by God, they are described in relation to the kingdom of God. I think that's also very important. But it's neat to demonstrate that these are figures that are human beings, they are distinct from Yahweh, and yet they are highly authorized, highly empowered, and they are sharing in God's privileges. Now, I do want to spend a little bit of time right here at the end talking about the scope of the all men, all people whom Jesus will draw unto himself. So I do want to do a little word study on this phrase, all, which is really an adjective. And what we're going to look at is that all is an all-encompassing word. No pun intended. I just can't think of a better phrase to describe what it is. And the extent of the all-encompassing word, all, this adjective, which is pos, pos, upon, which is the masculine, feminine, and neuter form of this particular adjective. This is very important in the theology of the Gospel of John. And as we're going to notice, this deals with the association of God's logos and, of course, the embodied logos, which is Jesus. And the all-encompassing out look of their ministry. So let's note this particular point by doing a simple word study. So in our present passage, John chapter 12, verse 32, Jesus says, I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. So there the all, the all people, deals with the redemption. And I think it's the redemption through the embodied Logos. Jesus, as the human figure, is the Logos made flesh. And as you'll recall, the Logos is a personification of God's creative speech. The Logos is not a conscious person. It is a personification of God's utterance, God's speech, God's word. And of course, this draws on what we see within the prologue of the Gospel of John. Everything goes back to the prologue. The prologue is the preface for the theology of the entirety of the Gospel of John. So in John 1.3, it says, all things, there's our all there, all things came into being through him, that is through the personified Logos. And apart from him, apart from the personified Logos, nothing came into being that has come into being. So there we have creation that took place through the Logos. Now it was through the Word, obviously God. Obviously the Father is the Creator. The Logos is not the Creator. But God created through His speech. God created through His Word. All things were made, and nothing came into being apart from the Logos. So it's also important to note that the creation here comes from this verb, yenomai, 
you know, my means to be or to become. And in the aorist form used here in John 1.3, it indicates a completed act of all things coming into being, all things that came into existence. In other words, all things were created. It is a verb that means creation. Now, a few verses later in the prologue, in John 1.9, it speaks about the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. And there again, we have our adjective for all. It's in the singular, though, so that means each man, every man, but it's the same sense. We now have the theology of the Logos, and in John 1.4, the Logos had within it life, and that life was the light of men. And here we can see in John 1 night that the light comes into the world and it enlightens every man. The light of the Logos enlightens every person, and it brings light to darkness, and of course, it does so by speaking truth into darkness. But we have this phrase, all, each, every, it's the same adjective, and it's very important, but it indicates that it was the personified Logos that bore this life, and this life brought light to enlighten every person. Now, we know that in John 1.14, the Word becomes flesh. God's personified speech gets embodied in the human Jesus. I think the aspect of flesh involves the birth of Jesus. That's my reading of it. And so from there on out, we have references to Jesus as the embodiment of God's personified speech. The theme of the Logos and the encompassing act of the Logos continues with this phrase all, like in John 3, verse 35, where Jesus says that the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. There again, we have the phrase all. So the Father has shared all things with the embodied Logos. A few chapters later, in John 5.20, Jesus says, For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself is doing. That's John 5.20. So there the Father reveals to the embodied Logos all his plans and purposes. You can see that this phrase all involves an all-encompassing scope that is involved with the Logos and, of course, the embodied Logos, that is, the human Jesus. Two verses later, in John 5, verse 22, Jesus says, Not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son. So there we have the redemption, the setting to rights, the rewarding, and the responsibility to punish evil are all given to the embodied Logos, namely to the Son. So, all is this all-encompassing word that defines the extent of the scope of the Logos' influences, from creation to redemption to judgment. And of course, in our present passage, it is the Son of Man. When he is lifted up, he is going to draw all people unto himself, Jews and Gentiles, for those who would believe in him, they will not have death, but they will have everlasting life. 
the life of the age to come. And this, of course, shows what I've tried to point out in many episodes, namely that the prologue of the Gospel of John is the preface for the theology of the entirety of the fourth gospel. So there you have it. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. Please join us next week. We'll look into John chapter 13, and we'll see another example of the theme of misunderstanding in John 13. So please look forward to our next episode. If you enjoy our podcast, please consider supporting us as we are promoting the sound truths of the oneness and unity of God and the humanity of Jesus. You can support us by subscribing for free on YouTube and on iTunes. You can give us an honest review on iTunes, and you can share your favorite episodes with your friends. If you feel compelled to donate, then you may check us out on PayPal. There is a link to PayPal and how you may donate in the episode description. The Biblical Unitarian Podcast is produced and edited by Dustin Williams. I am Dustin Smith, your host. Until next time, folks, please take care.